now in prayer. All glory be to Thee, O God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. We praise Thee for Thy so great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank Thee that the government is upon His shoulders, and that He shall triumph, and that the heathen rage but in vain. For Thou shalt in Thine own time smash them, and shatter them with a rod of iron. Do Thou, O Lord, give us faith, strength, and holy boldness, so that in these troubled days we may stand, we may wage holy war, and may become more than conquerors through Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Our subject this morning is the work ethic, and our scripture is from Thessalonians' first epistle, the fourth chapter, verses 3 through 12. But our particular concern is a key verse in that passage, verse 11. We have been studying the theology of work, once a very important subject in the Christian community and now virtually a forgotten one. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 12. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, and we also have forewarned you and testified, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who also hath given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Well before the 20th century began, the doctrine of work... As scripture teaches it, had begun to recede in its influence. The so-called Puritan work ethic was in marked decline. Prior to the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, man had a work ethic. As a matter of fact, the greatness of the medieval era was due precisely to that. 
When we go back into the early centuries, we find St. Benedict's view summed up in five words. To labor is to pray. This was more than just a monkish doctrine. (coughs) Historians have not done justice to it. According to them, St. Benedict required work as a means of avoiding idleness. He stipulated that work had to be necessary work, work which contributed to the welfare of the Christian community. But in analyzing St. Benedict's doctrine, what they have done is to isolate St. Benedict. They forget that Christian man in every century has had the background of the Bible, of centuries of Hebraic and Christian tradition. They forget that Benedict and others were governed by the recognition that God had ordained work before the fall. Much later, St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, and I quote, When we read that Adam was put into the paradise of pleasure to till it and keep it, who would reasonably maintain that his children have been put in this place of trial to rest from work, unquote. In St. Bernard's day, parents were very prone to try to protect their children from work. They tried to amass a sufficient fortune to give them an inheritance that would relieve them of the responsibility of work as a work or a curse. But St. Bernard called attention to the fact that prior to the fall, man had been set in a sinless paradise and ordered by God to work. So obviously work can be and should be a blessing. St. John Chrysostom had made the same point centuries earlier. St. Basil the Great said work and prayer should be linked. We should pray, he said, and I quote, that the work of our hands may be directed to its goal, the good pleasure of God, unquote. Now, the verse more often used than any other by the theologians of the early church and the preachers as well, and well into the Middle Ages, was 1 Thessalonians 4.11. That ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you. This was in particular stressed by the monasteries. St. Bernard called the three marks of the monk separation from work, voluntary poverty, and work. 
the fact that Jesus was a carpenter's son. And like all children of his day, early trained, according to the Hebraic pattern, to know the law of God and to work with his hands was very often stressed throughout the medieval era. Now, I've stressed this medieval inheritance because we have it in the Puritan work ethic. The Puritan work ethic was a revival of something that had died before the Reformation and was now revived by the Puritans self-consciously. It was a revival of that which Scripture taught, which the early church practiced, and which the medieval era, at least to the 13th century, very strongly stressed. Work in terms of God's calling and in the words of St. Basil the Great, with its goal, the good pleasure of God. This is why reclamation became so important very early in the life of medieval Europe. It was seen as an exercise of man's calling under God as the exercise of dominion. It was then that, for example, in the Netherlands, the dikes first began to be built and land reclaimed from the sea. That desert areas were made into fertile lands throughout Europe. That rocky, mountainous areas were made fertile that canals were built by hand, and much, much more. All this in terms of a faithfulness to Scripture. Thus, when we look at St. Benedict's sentence, to labor is to pray, we must realize that the few rules and the like that we have surviving of St. Benedict presuppose as their background the knowledge of Scripture. In particular, the stress on 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Study to be quiet, to do your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Here was Paul said, a practical test of the Christian life. And this was emphatically stressed and carried on by the Puritans in continuity with medieval monasticism. We often forget that the United States is a Protestant feudal restoration in its structure the decentralization of its basic governmental units. It is a Protestant feudal restoration. It is planned decentralization. Of course, we have had since 
Woodrow Wilson, a major move to destroy that character. But it is still there. Moreover, we have to recognize that evangelical Protestantism, even though it does not know it, is in very strong continuity with the monastic spirit. For example, one great figure, General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, self-consciously revived a great deal that monasticism had once practiced. And one of the things that he revived from the preaching friars of the medieval era was street preaching. Our contemporary fundamentalist street preachers don't know that they go back to the preaching friars through General Booth. The work ethic is a biblical fact. We have no example in history, save one, where the work ethic has occurred in a society. When men have worked, it has been because they are slaves, they are ordered to it, or they need work to eat, to survive. The only exception, of course, is contemporary Japan for a variety of complex historical reasons I will not go into. Jared Taylor has commented that the single most important ingredient in Japanese success is the Japanese attitude toward work. But the foundation of the Japanese work ethic is the group, not God, and it is showing signs of waning as westernization begins to affect them. Thus, the work ethic as we know it, which is God-centered, dominion-centered, is a necessity. It is a basic part of the Christian life. St. Jerome said that not only was it necessary for the good pleasure of God, but for the salvation of the soul. He did not mean thereby that we were saved by work, but that the man who did not work could not understand the meaning of salvation. His whole life was geared to something else, to a different kind of universe, to a different kind of expectation with regard to reality. Now, this work ethic that marked monasticism and Puritanism tells us why the world has been so hostile as it has become humanistic to monasticism and to the Puritan temper. An interesting fact is that in 1788 into early 1789, Central and Western Europe 
had a thousand monasteries of Benedictine monks and five hundred for nuns. Fifteen hundred. Fifty years later, only five percent of these survived. Why? Because the movement that began with the French Revolution led to their destruction in France and their suppression elsewhere. At the end of the 50 years, the 5% that survived were greatly reduced in their numbers. Their libraries had been despoiled and destroyed and the accumulation of centuries taken away or destroyed. At the same time, you had the beginnings also of a spirit of savage hostility to Puritanism, which broke out in this country with the Unitarian movement and its ridicule of everything that marked the Puritan temper and the Puritan work ethic. So that monasticism and its work ethic and Puritanism and its work ethic, the two related, the two going back to Scripture, have in the modern world been the target of unremitting hostility. We have seen in the process a change from Christianity to humanism. It is interesting to look up work or labor in encyclopedias. Almost in every case there isn't a hint of the biblical perspective. Even such a work as Hastings' Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, published in 1912, and one of the monuments of scholarship of this century has an incredibly obtuse and long study of labor. Under labor, it reads rather, see employment and economics, and then you are referred to socialism. But under employment... We uh, have an article that begins with primitive slavery because employment, work, is associated with slavery, a good neoplatonic perspective. Then from slavery we go on to capitalism as another form of slavery and then to the state as the answer and unemployment, unemployment compensation and so on. Nothing in a an encyclopedia of religion and ethics, the major encyclopedia of its kind on the biblical perspective. About the only work that has anything that smacks of a biblical perspective is in the more recent Encyclopedia Judaica, which does state in its article on labor that the Bible regards work as, quote, man's destiny and an aspect of the cosmic order, unquote. 
This article also refers to the fact that Proverbs stresses the religious and moral character of work, which is very true. And it's significant that in our day the book of Proverbs is a relatively neglected one. There was a time not too many years ago that you could buy the Psalms and the Proverbs in separate volumes. And it was commonplace for the average Christian to know hundreds of the Proverbs by heart. There would be vest pocket editions of it for businessmen who would memorize them because it was so full of godly counsel about the conduct of one's affairs. We should, therefore, glance at some of the things that Proverbs has to say about work. Well, Proverbs 18, verse 9 in the Berkeley Version reads, He who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Now, the full force of this verse doesn't hit us immediately. But let us consider its implications. Scripture speaks of the devil as the destroyer. So when Proverbs says, He who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys, we have an implicit reference to the devil. In other words, the lazy man, the sluggard, is related to the devil. Implicit also is the fact that the worker is under God and is akin to him, is manifesting the image of God in what he does. Now this is in line with what monasticism and Puritanism held. They stress the fact that the idler is related to the devil and that the devil uses idle hands. Proverbs speaks of the sluggard as a sad and comical figure, but also as a dangerous one. He is spoken of as being in his heart so lazy that his life is hinged to his bed as the door turneth upon his hinges so doth the slothful man upon his bed so reads proverbs 26:14 we are told that the lazy man will use any excuse to avoid work thus proverbs 26:13 reads the slothful man saith there is a lion in the way a lion is in the streets any excuse to avoid responsibility. And of course, there is not a job in the universe, this side of heaven, that doesn't have problems associated with it. And to run away from problems is to run away from God-given responsibility. We are told further that the lazy man is unwilling to start anything. 
For example, in Proverbs 6, verses 9 through 11, we read, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 12:27 tells us that the lazy man is so bad that even when he goes hunting for food, when he comes home, he's too lazy to get around to cleaning it and cooking it, so he will let it spoil. He is wasteful of food, we are told, in Proverbs 19:24 and 26:45, because of his laziness. He is brilliant and very hard at work to find excuses to avoid responsibility, to avoid working where there's any unpleasantness, to run away from responsibility. And Proverbs 26:16 tells us, the sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. In other words, when it comes to avoiding responsibility, he is wiser than seven wise men. At that point, he shines. I've known men who worked very hard to get out of work. They would have expended less energy if they had worked, but they would not. Therefore, says Proverbs 24, the sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in the harvest and have nothing. It's either too hot or too cold. Nothing is right for working. There's always something wrong with the conditions of work. There is a perversity. The way of the slothful man is as a hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. The sluggard is a restless man, a malcontent. The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat, says Proverbs 13.4. But... Such a man makes a contribution to society, Proverbs says with great irony. It is greed and envy. In Proverbs 21, 25, and 26 we read, The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. He coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. In other words, says Proverbs 18.9, the sluggard is socially useless. According to Proverbs 10.26, he is unpleasant. He is a drain on society. He is not an asset. Like the devil, he is a destroyer, not a creator. Well, when there are only a few sluggards around, they are comical figures. But when their number increases, we have 
a destructive force at work in any society. In Revelation 9:11, Satan is called the destroyer, Apollyon. In John 8:44, our Lord says he is a liar and a murderer. So that the man who does not work, who hates work, who prefers leisure, is associated by Scripture with the devil, a liar, a murderer, a destroyer. He is destructive of society. And we should recognize this fact. Wherever the work ethic declines, that society becomes progressively demonic. It also becomes progressively political in its orientation. All the answers are seen as coming through legislation, political legislation. Such a society, because it is demonic, associated with destruction, prefers lies and death to God and life. It should not surprise us, therefore, in our culture that we have abortion and indolence, suicide and drugs, and a preference for a life of leisure to a life of work. These things are the natural concomitants of a society dedicated to the ethics of leisure. Any evasion of life and its responsibilities tells us that there we have a love of death and the culture of death. To expect a good society without the work ethic is absurd. The kingdom of God cometh not by votes nor appropriations. Therefore, says Paul to the Thessalonians, study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. He was talking to a society that was caught up in rapture fever. They were living in an empire that was degenerate. Things were not going smoothly and easily in Rome. They were still in the midst, as Paul wrote, of an inflationary prosperity. Within a generation or two, there would begin a long decline economically, a depression that lasted until Rome fell, the longest depression in history. But already the cracks in the economy were appearing. And the Thessalonians found, oh, this is wonderful. We've learned about Jesus Christ from uh, this marvelous apostle Paul. So we're going to be raptured out of the world. And Paul tells them, no. God requires something of you. You're saved. Now, work out the implications of your salvation. Study to be quiet. To do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. The work ethic is a command from Almighty God. 
Man's calling is work. It is not leisure. The destructive force of a leisure-oriented society is not appreciated today, but its deadliness is not diminished by man's ignorance of its evil. Therefore, the command of our Lord applies to our generation also. To study to be quiet, to do our own business, and to work with our own hands as God through his holy apostle has commanded us. Let us pray. Thy word is truth, O Lord, and thy word speaks plainly to our every condition. Give us grace to hear and to obey and to work to the end that thy kingdom may shine forth in all its glory, that the ends of the earth might know that thou art God, that we might be faithful in things little and in things great, and that thy name may be glorified in our lives. Grant us this, we beseech thee, in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. You gave three attributes of a, a monk, a separation, poverty, and work. I didn't get what you said the separation was from. Separation from the world. From the world. Yes. Okay. And of those two, it would seem that those are not types for us to follow. And that why, why were there monasteries then? Well, uh, there are long and complex reasons for the rise of monasteries. There's no question that uh, there was an element of Neoplatonic asceticism in the monasteries. This was even more true of the desert monks who preceded them. On the other hand, very important in the whole monastic movement was the fact that the world was collapsing around them. And these were people who were, some of them retreating from that collapsing world, but many of them concerned about what can we do in such a world? It was, in its own way, a program of Christian reconstruction. When we consider what these monasteries became, it tells us what they did. For example, they would, as they developed in time, have an infirmary or a hospital. They would have guest facilities so that they could house large numbers of travelers, rich and poor. They had orchards and uh, they had uh, poultry and fish that they raised to feed themselves and others. They took care of the poor who came and provided the relief of their day. They drained swamps. They built irrigation canals. 
they cleared the land of stones and other things. They built dikes in the Netherlands and much more. So, in their own way, they had a program of Christian reconstruction, a very important one. So, uh, there were many reasons why different monks went into a monastery. But steadily, the monasteries aimed at doing precisely these sorts of things. This is why they were called the regular clergy, because they were giving full time to God. The parish clergy were called the secular clergy. In a sense, they were doing what the average pastor does too much of today. He's holding hands with a lot of people who have no business being so worried about things. Their whole life is caught up with trifles. Mrs. Jones and Mrs. Smith have a fight. And the pastor has to go around and smooth ruffled feathers. Endless things like that, trifles, take up most of the time of a secular clergy or a parish clergy so that uh, very little of the essential is now being accomplished by most pastors. They put in a few hours a week in a teaching ministry and most of the time with brush fires. People who have nothing else to do but fight with each other and make life hell on earth for the pastor. Well, it seems as though they've adopted the first two attributes, separation from the world and poverty, and ignored the work part. Yes, I think there was a very close connection there. Yes? Is it safe to assume then that uh, some of the monastic orders were more heavily influenced by asceticism than others? Yes. Some of the monastic orders were more ascetic than others. The Benedictines were in particular very practical in their orientation. This is one reason why they were such a particular target of attack. Yes? It's paradoxical that education which originally started, I would imagine, <coughs> to develop skills, work skills, has turned into the greatest enemy of work at modern times. Very good point. I hope you all caught that. Education which began within the church in order to develop skills has now become the enemy of labor. Uh, it has become an ivory tower uh, concept. Yes. Well, that, that would that ties in uh, with that essay that Dorothy Sayers wrote, because she said that uh, education in the medieval era was geared more towards teaching people the tools of learning than it was in educating them in the classical sense of the word, and subjects didn't come until later in the curriculum, and then only as grist for the mill, as material to use the tools on 
in order to polish the skills. And uh, she points out that's one of the reasons why we had so many child prodigies and, and so-called geniuses during the, the medieval and after periods where we had 15 and 16-year-old uh, children writing major works of, of incredible importance. And um, uh, whereas the modern educational system is exactly reversed, it just teaches a lot of subjects from beginning to end, and it's only in the latter grades do we get any any idea of how to use the tools of learning, doing research and what have you. And and that would tie in with what with what Otto said in terms of education starting out as uh, teaching a person how to do work, skills, etc., and then reversing itself later. That's so important a point, Otto. I think you ought to write on it. It is something we urgently need to have stressed in order to restore a proper perspective to education. So if you would uh, do that, it would be most important. Yes, John? It's interesting. About the last uh, 40 or 50 years, I think we've gone from roughly uh, 4% of the high school students, uh, seniors, going on to college to something like 40 or 50 percent going on to college and uh, what we had is a mass of well-educated people who couldn't do anything and now we have a mass of not well-educated people who can't do anything <laughs> but uh, then this has led in the last 10 or 15 years to the growth of the community college systems and I think they've come on to respond to the point that uh, John and Otto were making that uh, people are saying, well, okay, I've got a college degree, but what can I do with it? Mm -hmm. Yes. One of the disasters of our time has been your graduate of a college who uh, is an African or an Asiatic who was sent to Europe or to the United States to get a degree. He goes back and he will not work with his hands. He is now an intellectual. And what is left for him to do? There isn't enough of a bureaucracy to absorb him, so he becomes a revolutionist. The world has to be made safe for eggheads. And they have become a major problem the world over, and they're a problem here. When uh, exactly on that point, it's interesting that uh, when I took courses at the University of Maryland in the late 50s, early 60s on uh, the Middle East and the Far East area studies about development and lesser developed countries and so forth, that point was made at that time that these people went back and basically what they did is got jobs in government because uh, in the bureaucracy it's, it's basically make work. Uh, and we used to laugh at that because we didn't think of it as applying to our country. But I think that's exactly what's happened in our country now. Most of the uh, surplus uh, labor that can't do anything useful goes into government or into revolutionary activity right here in this country. Up until about 1970, around the world, one of the best-known educational institutions was one here in California, which most Californians rarely think about, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. The reason was that it was a place where they could be trained in practical things. They could go back, and whether it was in agriculture or in engineering or any other subject, they were highly competent and could get in and work because 
They knew how to work with their hands and to appreciate the value of that kind of work. None of the countries in Africa or Asia had any problem with their students from Cal Poly. Uh, when the president retired there, then they began to allow men in the humanities to have tenure as professors, and they began to have a different emphasis there. But uh, it is significant that uh, it was the one school that was regarded without exception as being a major asset uh, by foreign countries. Yes. Would you say from uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 that the Apostle Paul bases his ethics of work on a creation ordinance or from something from the wisdom of the Old Testament or is there some tie-up with what follows the imminence of the return of the Lord and particularly verse 17 where the Apostle says then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up etc and that the Thessalonians might have uh, expected the coming in their time and then they didn't work anymore and they just left it mm -hmm. and it became a chaotic disorderliness yes I called it rapture fever which is an American term yeah, I didn't quite get that yes <laughs> well uh, you don't have that problem in South Africa but rapture fever is uh, what we call the expectation of the imminent return and being raptured and then the world going on and so on. So that uh, there is no question in my mind that Paul was dealing with people who were caught up in that. It's very clear here. And he summons them to get on with the work that God ordained from the beginning of creation. So it's part also of the creation order. Yes. They uh, uh, have to recognize that uh, they have to leave that to God. But they have a duty here and now, as the whole of Scripture stresses. And it's a very practical duty. Uh, they must get about it. Yes. This question is just kind of related, Rush. The power of the university. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm under the impression from somewhere. I don't know where I found it uh, or where I got it. I'm under the impression that Galileo, for example, was tried by the university and not by the church. Is that correct? No. Pardon? No. Uh, the university has an unusual history. It was created by the church originally to serve the church, to serve God and the kingdom of God. Then it fell from that in the modern era with the Enlightenment, and it became a place for the sons of the nobility to go to learn how to be a gentleman. And uh, the modern university with its program is geared to having classes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, getting a little tidbit of various subjects. No 
solid concentration. Why? Because you could not press the gentleman's son with too much work in a classroom or outside of the classroom. He had to have a great deal of time free for gaming and wenching. So the modern university still has the contact of being abstracted from a practical working world. And I don't think it can change apart from a Christian context. Well, our time is up, so let's conclude now with prayer. Lord, it has been good for us to be here. Thy word is truth, and thy word is a joy and a light and a lamp unto our feet. Strengthen us by thy word and grant us thy peace. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.